back to the Flat Out RC podcast, a podcast where we talk all things radio control flight. We're talking radio control planes, drones, and helis. My name is Andrew Sill. I'm the host of this podcast, coming to you all the way from Melbourne, Australia. Big welcome to everybody who is listening from around the world and locally here in Australia. Well, last week, you probably heard that I had a bit of a cold. This week, I'm still, I feel okay, but I'm still recovering. So my voice is a bit funny. But luckily, a number of weeks ago, I recorded an interview with our guest. And our guest is the first return guest. And his name is Martin Pickering. And and something I'm trying to do this year is get some experts in their field to sort of come on the show and and educate us a bit more. So Martin's going to do that. We're going to be talking about uh, power boxes, power box distribution boards, uh, that kind of thing, which uh, Martin has some expertise in. So stay tuned. Excellent uh, chat with Martin Pickering. We'll learn a lot in this episode this week. So what's been on my mind? Well, let's take a closer look. couple of things have been on my mind this week. Well, first of all, yesterday, today's Sunday, the 14th, uh, when I'm recording this, but yesterday on the Saturday, we finally had our memorial for Edo Segev, uh, my my dearly departed friend, great aero modeler. We had a big uh, bit, bit of an event down at the Tyab Airport down here, uh, which was quite good, a bit of a sausage sizzle, because that's what we know that Edo would have loved, having some sausages and a group of uh, like-minded people. So people from radio control flying, from uh, his full-size flying, a lot of people from his full-size flying, from his windsurfing buddies, they're all there. And uh, to me, actually, the highlight were the, the flyovers. There were some 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 of his colleagues got in their planes, did some flyovers, and the, the Thai Aero Club really helped out, the Peninsula Aero Club down there, really helped out. Um, the missing man formation gets me every time when I see that. That was just... Uh, Phenomenal to see that big Boeing Stearman that Ido did fly uh, up there doing some passes as well, as well as the the Nan Chang, uh, the, the Chinese trainers that Ido used to do joy flights with people um, on, they, they came past. So it was a good good way to send off Ido Sig every year year in the making. COVID put a, put a halt on a lot of things, but we finally got there. But what else has been on my mind? I've been really thinking about uh, training and how we train our pilots to fly and uh, you know, someone's sent me a message. Who's that? It's an instructor, actually, Keith Quick. Um, they, uh, so I've been talking, I've been thinking about this instructing and how, how we teach up and coming pilots, beginners. And the first thing I looked at was I thought, gee, we really need a curriculum. You know, we go to school and, and the teachers are taught, you know, this is what we need to, to teach the kids this year. These are the prescribed topics and that kind of stuff. And you know, my learning experience is a bit odd. I basically taught myself on a simulator, went to a flying club, showed them that I could fly, and next minute I had my my license to, to go out there by myself. So I progressed quite quickly on the back of all the simulator simulator practice that I did. Uh, but I think that not everybody's in that situation, spent years on the simulator before they actually fly the real thing like I was mucking around with over the years. And it seems to me there's a lack of structure to the training processes here in Australia. I'm not sure around the world, but I dare say around the world are similar. But when I delve deeper, the MAAA, our local authorities association, has actually has guidelines. There's an instructor's handbook and there's actually even a trainee logbook. And it's actually a really good process. They, they cover simulators. 
They say using a simulator to support training is encouraged. The keys to use the simulator properly, practicing the teaching points covered during the lesson. So they're, they're saying simulators can be part of the, the learning process. They talk about the lesson topics, you know, introduction to learning to fly RC, safety procedures, transmitter and aircraft controls, aircraft airworthiness and safety checks, flying in a straight line. Flying in a straight line, one of the hardest manoeuvres to ever do. Some people can't fly in a straight line. Turns, circuits, procedural turns, figure of eights, and use of rudder. Oh, gee, how many people don't know how to use their rudder well? Uh, taking off, landing approaches, and landing. It's a really good curriculum, really. I think the downfall is, though, I've never seen it. I've never seen... Well, I mentioned Keith Quigg earlier, who just sent me a message, because I was bouncing some ideas off him just to, to do some research, and he said he actually does follow it to a certain extent and uses the trainee logbook. I said, look, Keith, I've never seen anybody use it. I've never seen the documents. I looked for it. And I think that it's a great thing for clubs to utilise. Because I think you know, if, you, if you go and get your full-size pilot's licence, there is a course that you need to undertake. If you don't undertake that course and you don't pass the required things, you don't get your licence. And I think with model flying, we need to have more instruction and a more official approach than what we have now, which is... I feel is generally up to the discretion of the instructor. Yes, the instructor has to be go through a course to be acknowledged as an instructor, but I've seen some really bad pilots pass that course. I just I don't understand how some of the people that I know became instructors. It's one thing being able to fly. There's another thing being able to teach people how to fly. And that's where that curriculum is that is that guide to someone teaching someone else how to fly as to what needs to be covered and in the process the process in which to do that. So, you know, we talk a lot about safe safe flying and I, I ask myself, what does safe flying mean? And again, the NAAA has outlined safety procedures and what we should be abiding by. And, and some of them are things like, you know, just respectful things like, you know, don't fly over the pits, it could be unsafe. Um, you know, being aware of your surroundings, that kind of thing. Making sure that your plane's in a, in a, in a fit enough state to fly. So yeah, so, so uh, safe flying to me is competent flying. If you're a competent flyer and you're situationally aware so you know what's going on around you and you're calm enough to be able to do that then i think uh you'll be a safe pilot and that means teaching people you know in a structured way going through the process to build their confidence and understanding so that they can make good decisions when they need to make decisions that's what i find how many people have you seen coming into land and they're all over the shop on their approach and then you know so their, their mind's going crazy and then the plane's still not on the ground it's flown past them and now they can see the end of the runway catching up and they're still committed to land. There's only 10 metres left of the runway to go and they plonk it on the ground, they run it off and rip the undercarriage off. That's an example of lack of situational awareness. I really think that uh, you should be able to know when you're going to stuff up the landing, just go around. You know, a, a good pilot will always have a battery in reserve or petrol in reserve to be able to do a few approaches just in case. And I, am, would pr I proudly put my hand up and say, I am very accomplished at the go around because I've got a standard in my mind as to when I want those wheels to touch down. For example, in my mind is those wheels must touch down before it, it reaches, the plane reaches my body. So if I'm halfway down the runway, it's got to be landed in sort of that first uh, third of the runway uh, because I'm not chasing that plane down the runway after it's uh, gone past me. So if I feel as if my approach is no good, I'll just go around again and, and do it again. Big deal if people think I'm bad at landing, but... I can tell you now, every time I land, it'll be a pretty good landing. Just might have to have a few attempts at it, and that is fine. So, instructors out there, what are you doing to to you know ensure that your 
building pilot skills up to a certain level that we know that you know the MAAA would be happy with and, and other pilots at the flying field. My tip is let's go back to the drawing board. Let's go back to the MAAA documents and, and enforce those. And anybody that's a chief flying instructor, that's what I would be encouraging them to do is get that document get the training training logbook out and just make sure that every step of the way you've ticked people off. And that means we know that when they get their, their licenses, their silver wings, bronze wings, whatever you want to call it, that they have met that standard competently. So that's what I've been thinking about this week. As I mentioned earlier, Martin Pickering is the guest on the Flat Out RC podcast this week. And, Martin has been on before, and I really enjoyed my chat with Martin. He, he's a great guy. He He's based in Spain. He lives in Spain, has since he was five years old, and he, but he's originally from the UK, so he's got an English accent. But he can speak Spanish fluently as well. He is great on YouTube. Uh, if you get onto YouTube and look at Martin Pickering, you'll see uh, he does some really, really good videos. He, he He's the kind of guy that spends a lot of time in producing the content you know i've had lots of chats with him about it and it would be what you see on camera is only a fraction of the work that goes in behind the scenes to be able to produce those videos so he he he's a great guy and he presents really well and and i wanted to sort of talk more about specific things to do with aero modeling um and reaching out to some some people that i know that are real experts sort of in their field as i call them and i think martin is when it comes to working with power boxes i know that he's been sponsored by powerbox but He's done some really good tutorials on how to how to use them, how to set them up. So take a listen to this uh, this little chat with Martin. You'll learn something about um, distribution boards, why to use them, when to use them, that kind of thing. So here we go. My special guest, Martin Pickering. Well, we have a repeat offender coming back to the Flat Out RC podcast for the first time. Martin Pickering, you were the first person to come back uh, from, to the Flat Out RC podcast and hope to have you back many more times in the future welcome back martin thank you it's a pleasure and an honor well tell me what's been happening over there in spain oh not much at all we're uh, mostly still locked down we did have a period where we could go out and fly uh, albeit briefly uh we're now back uh, stuck at home at weekends only really being able to go out to work Although, hopefully, fingers crossed, uh, on next Monday, 1st of March, we can finally do some activities that are in the open air, and those do include flying. So, fingers crossed for that. <laughs> yeah, look, we, we, we've ha- been through the same situation over here. So, so currently, what, the clubs have been shut, and we, well, they give you uh, limits on how many people can be at the field at one point in time, or...? No, at the moment, uh, what's happened basically is they've locked down all big cities. Uh, unfortunately, that includes mine, which means that we can't leave our own city at weekends, which means we can't travel to the flying field. Yeah, They've also parallelly just cancelled every sporting event and activity. And as difficult as it is to get organisations to consider flying a, a sport in normal conditions, They've been good enough to include us as a sport for closing things down. <laughs> well, see, so, we're lucky in in Australia. Aero modelling is actually classified as a sport. It sits under a sort of its categories as sport. So we had went through the same kind of situation where a lot of sporting venues were shut down. But um, 
We've been pretty lucky, actually. Well, I, I don't think any Australians can really complain. We've had, we've been, you know, depending on where you live in Australia, where I live, we went through a, a three-month lockdown. We had restrictions that restricted us to like five-kilometre radius from our houses and things like that. But uh, look, it's cold over there, isn't it? You don't have snow on the ground at the moment, but uh, it, it's it's winter weather, isn't it? Yeah, we're in full-blown winter here. Uh, we're not as bad as Madrid were a little while ago where they had several feet of snow. But uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to my invite to actually do a podcast with you in person and get some flying in some warm weather without lockdown <laughs> in Australia. I, I was I, I was just telling you off air that I went for a fly today and I haven't been for a fly for ages and it was dead calm. There was no wind. It was about 21 degrees. It was cloudy. and uh, <laughs> You know how you can go off, people. <laughs> yeah. Oh, come on. I'm just sharing. the. I'm trying to boost you up. But I've got a question for you, actually, the experience that I had today. It was really grey conditions. And there are three or four times where I don't, I don't, didn't lose orientation. I started to get a little bit confused because of the greyness. I couldn't see which way the plane was going. Do you ever have that problem where you're flying too low and it's not an issue? I'll give you an Ali Machinchi answer here. Fly closer. <laughs> I was trying to. I, was, I, I took out my hundred cc and I haven't flown it for a while. And I was, I must say, I was a little bit nervous. But by the end, it, it was okay. I didn't lose the plane. It's a beautiful plane to land. Actually, do, do you love flying the big planes? Oh, absolutely! It's my preference, one hundred percent. As long as I can have a hundred cc, I'm not interested in the rest. Yeah, look, I, I, I did what four flights today on the big plane, and you go, yeah, it, it just. It's rock solid in the air. It's still really capable. Um, you know, you buy you know Extreme Flight, Pilot RC, these kind of brands. They're building really lovely models. What motors? Oh, you're running GPS, aren't you? Yeah. Now I, I've 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 seen a lot of GPS fly. Not in Australia. In Australia, we don't have a dealer, um, so we're a bit low on uh, GP motors around here. Oh, but we need to get that used to for a sh- Yeah, we used to. A few people have tried, but. Uh, but I tell you what, those those GP one two threes really can pull hard. Yeah, they're, they're a brilliant engine. They're super reliable and especially powerful. So for me, just like a hundred cc plane is the right size, GP one two three is the right engine as well for it. So perfect combo. What um what size prop are you running? I'm not actually that picky for props. I normally run about a twenty seven eleven. I do have okay. a couple of uh, different size Falcons uh, on their way to me at the moment. Uh, my slick is currently waiting a maiden once we can get out to fly and once the props arrive. Oh, really? Got a couple of different sizes on there which we'll be testing. But uh, it'll be interesting to see. But yeah, normally I'm not particularly picky. And as long as it's got a decent pickup and uh, good power, I'm happy with it. I'm more picky about oh, servos yeah. than props. Are you? Now... That's by the oh, that slick that you've got, the Pilot RC slick. I reckon it is the best looking aerobatic plane going around at the moment. That's absolutely is love phenomenal. It. Yeah, it, it like it's it's one of those one of those schemes that I look at. I love nice schemes, but I I really think that a lot of companies really fall short with their designs, with their scheme designs in that aerobatic field. But I think Pilot RC is sort of leading that way, and that slick is just. Beautiful. Yeah, I mean, Pilot always struggled with schemes. Uh, I designed a few. The guys at Pilot designed a few, and we just never could never quite get it right. But as of I'd say about a year ago, Tony and Pilot RC signed a contract with Merco. I'm going to try. I'm going to say this wrong, but Merco Percorari, uh, the guy from yeah, yeah. Aircraft Studio Design, 
who uh, designs yeah. pretty much every good scheme out there. And uh, yeah, you can tell the difference. I mean, they're coming out with some really wicked color schemes that uh, is definitely worth the money. Yeah, and I think that's what they need to do because yeah, we want the planes to fly well, but we like if they look good as well. And uh, yeah, I think some of the Chinese manufacturers sort of fallen short in that regard. You know, that they, they sort of they do a lot of copying, you know, of, of other people's schemes. A lot of flames. Like, I don't want to see. <laughs> oh, and stars. I don't want to see any more stars on no. an aerobatic plane. I'm done with stars. They don't do anything for me. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so okay, safely we can safely say then you haven't been out flying. But I noticed that the the YouTube videos keep on coming. Uh, we try. We've been prioritising those whilst you're in lockdown. Yeah, I and mean, there's nothing else to do. We're we're stuck at home. Can't go out. Can't go fly. Restaurants are closed. All kinds of uh, hobbies and sport activities are closed. Locked in at home. I mean, I spent the last uh, yeah. couple of months of 2020 finishing the office that well, you can see behind me, but uh, listeners can't. Uh, where I mm. finally redesigned my office, where I basically work and have my online shop, BickeringRC.com. But uh, quick blip there. And then yeah, no, in 2021, yeah, just trying to get some cool videos out there. Just finished four videos on the Powerbox iGyro 3 Extra, which took a long time to prepare and film and get all the B-roll and the behind-the-scenes shots, but really pleased with the results. There's some really long ones, and there's a short version as well for those that don't want to watch a 20-minute long video going into every single detail. The five-minute one that tells you all you need to know from taking it out of the box to flying it and fine-tuning it. How long does it take you to, to shoot the average video? It depends massively on what kind of video we're doing. If it's a shoot about flying, well, really, it's just kind of done within the day. I try to edit as soon as I can, ideally the same day it's filmed, because you do find that you take shots with an intention for them, but if you don't edit it the same day, you kind of forget, why did I take that shot? Or where was I going to put that? Or what was the reasoning behind doing that? Uh, so I try to do all that in a day. When it comes to these more complex shots where there are tutorials, they tend to take me a couple of weeks to do, dedicating too much too much time to it, really. Uh, I will admit that I cheat a little bit. I have a teleprompter now, which means I can basically type out what it is that I want to be saying and just read it off the screen. That has helped a lot because, I mean, I was taking a whole day to film a 10-minute sequence. Yeah. I'm not the most eloquent speaker, and I do struggle. And with things like that, I want to get the wording exactly right. I'm a perfectionist. Yeah. So as soon as there was a word that wasn't quite right, a little bit of a, <laughs> then that all got scrapped. And I try to take single shots. I don't like to cut and join together too much. So normally it's almost a single, very long chat. And then we add in all the pictures on top of that. We've got a lot in common, Martin. I think that's why we can get on well is that, we have a lot in common because everything that you said there, I 100% agree with. Down to, you know, when you shoot a video out at the field, just go and edit it straight away whilst it's fresh in your memory. Because you're like yeah. me, I, I shoot for the edit. I've got the edit in mind, you know, and so I, I like to jump on it straight away. But those other tutorial videos, they, I don't think people appreciate how much work is involved. It's not, not just not a matter of turn the camera on and talking to it. You've got to plan the whole thing out. And 
but but you can see the effort that you make and and what i've always found is that your tutorial style videos are really easily understood that today i've got I've got you on for a purpose, which is we're really going to focus on Powerbox solutions, mm-hmm. and it's something that you've got expertise in. But I, when it came to setting up my Powerbox in, in one of my planes, your video was the only one that made it simple for me to understand. I totally and utterly got the theory behind it, and I think it was the way that you communicate lends itself to that. So. We have you on the Flat Out RC podcast for a purpose because we're going to pick your brains. And so <laughs> we're, we're talking about power boxes here. And and when I talk about power boxes, the company's power box systems out of Germany, and we're talking about what we what people often refer to as the power box distribution board. But there's also things such as gyros and other accessories now that attach into the system and batteries and things like that. Yeah. So first of all, are you you're sponsored by Powerbox, aren't you? Yeah. Uh, I, t- I am sponsored by Powerbox. However, uh, my point of view with sponsorship is slightly different to what a lot of people tend to think it is. I believe that the sponsorship has to work both ways, which of course it does. It's not just about receiving discounts or free stuff. It's about returning more profit to the company than the cost that you have been to them. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that I have to lie for them. It doesn't mean that I have to cheat anyone. And if something isn't good, I'm going to tell you. In the same way, I'll tell them and say, you need to fix this. And this applies to all of my sponsors. I think this is as well why I get on quite well with sponsors, because I will actually say, I mean, there's been a load of changes to Pilot RC kits that have come through saying, this just doesn't work as it is, change it. Because I can't say that I recommend that part of that kit because it's not good. Fortunately, that's all been sorted out now. Uh, and the result speaks for itself. And I think with with brands, you have to be like that. You can't tell people something's good when it isn't because they're going to call you out on it. You're not going to get a good name. And the whole sponsorship falls apart because you're not generating any benefit for the company because people don't believe you anymore. Yeah, no, you're 100% correct. And I think that... that- a lot of people that are, that are sponsored in the hobby, you know, they 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 do see it as a partnership with with the brand. And I know, like Tony Tan from Pilot RC, really loves feedback and very proactive to to want to ch- make changes. And um, you know, with some of the work that I do outside of the hobby, you know, I, I was recently doing some work with Honda motorcycles and with some of their sort of ambassadors of their brand. And shooting some videos, and they were very, very clear. They ain't making stuff up. Like if they don't like something, they're not going to talk about it. Um, but they'll be honest about it. And the, uh, and we're talking about you know, Daryl Beatty, the ex MotoGP rider, saying to me, "I'm not going to make things up." I said, "I don't want you to make yeah. things up because nobody's going to believe you." And I'm shooting. I'm getting paid by Honda make videos for them. And I'm just, and I'm saying, "Great, that's what I want. I want you to be honest." And so, exactly. and you're lucky though that. A lot of your sponsors are pretty damn good brands. Like they've got some pretty good solutions there for you. So I don't think there's a oh, lot totally. that you could really complain about. But again, you can get to work yourself into a position where you can, you know, pick and choose, you know, what's right for you. What's interesting is I think out of anybody that I've seen that has been sponsored, you give a truckload of value back through all your activity that you do, um, especially with something like Powerbox. So let's give them some more value. So if the team at Powerbox are listening, 
your awesome. man's doing a great job and he's helping us out a lot around the world. <laughs> I'm down here in Australia, but I know that, uh, you know, there's a lot of people listening from around the, the world that are, that are really thankful that you're doing the videos that you're doing. So, okay, let's start with, um, tell us a bit about what is a power box? And we're going to be focusing, as I said, primarily on the distribution board kind of thing that we're seeing a lot of larger scale planes, but what is it? A power box distribution board is basically safety for our models. When we used to fly small planes with small servos, well, a battery, a receiver was all you needed. Now we have these bigger, huge, and absolutely massive airplanes, which are running, rather than running four servos, we're running seven, 11, up to 20, 30, 40 servos in some of these monster planes. And a single receiver, no matter which brand it is, just isn't up to providing that much power to those many servos, especially when we take into account that servos these days aren't the servos that we had 10 years ago. They're pulling five, six, eight amps each in a fully stalled position. Now, a receiver normally is rated to sort of five or 10 amps in total. So when you look at the fact that how many servos you have pulling out of that single receiver that's so limited, it just isn't going to work. So a power box distributes all that power equally and safely to all those servos while also doing a load of other functions. It filters the signal from the receiver to the servos, uh, making sure there's no kind of feedback. It regulates power depending on which one you choose. And then it has a load of other features included in it. So you can have servo matching, uh, gear door sequencers, gyros, and a load of other really cool features. So it's an all-in-one solution that mainly is there to provide safety and security to our big, expensive, and let's admit it, dangerous models. Yeah. Now, one of the interesting takeaways for me, what you just said was around servos that uh, I didn't think of it in that way, which I should have really, I should be smarter than that, Martin, but I'm, you know, I'm not, but the, the, um, this is my dog going, can you hear my dog in the background? Yeah. You know my, dog <laughs> my dog appears in most episodes of this podcast. It hears a dog barking across the road. He wants, and to, be, that's a dog. wants to be part of it. <laughs> yeah. No, actually last week's episode, or no, a few weeks ago it was, I had the dog on my lap whilst I was on the podcast <laughs> just so that I could keep it quiet. But anyway, um, one of the one of the takeaways for me is like you were saying about servos and how they have changed over the years, and we're, we're getting these really high torquey, high speed servos that are coming out on the market that we're putting into, especially our aerobatic planes and things like that. That they are pulling more amps now. I don't know the answer to this, and that's why I'm going to ask you it. But you might know if you overload the receiver, you know, if you start pulling too many amps, what's the consequence? Do you lose radio signal, does the system fail, or what, what, what ends up happening? I'm laughing here because I actually finished editing a video yesterday, which is going up tomorrow, Sunday, uh, which will probably be out by the time uh, your yeah. listeners hear this. And it goes through a problem that I had recently, which has taken me several months to figure out. And it was just a phobie. My purple RC factory edge, the one meter version, which I installed four MKS servos into, DS95s. And the result was that the plane flies absolutely brilliantly because they're super strong, super quick, and especially super precise, which was the issue I was having with all the other servos I've tried in it. 
But the plane kept self-destroying itself. It just was flying into the ground with no apparent reason. Bent a couple of motor shafts, uh, destroyed uh, a couple of motors entirely, uh, broke the plane a couple of times, but mostly it bounced, fortunately, and just couldn't figure out what it was until I finally realized that basically the speed controller, which has a two amp back in it, wasn't able to power the four servos in fully stored positions, being able to pull almost one amp each. And the result is the same. The receiver doesn't have enough power for all of those servos, so the receiver turns off. For that moment in time, the receiver turns off and it may take two, three, four tenths of a second to basically repower all those servos. And for that period of time, without any kind of power box or other technology inside, the receiver turns off, you have no control. Depending on where you are, you'll be okay or you'll find uh, the earth real quick. And the same applies in larger models. The larger yeah. the servos, the more power they're going to pull, the harder that receiver would have to work and the sooner it's going to conk out. Well, looking back at some of the models that I've had mishaps with, and generally the mishaps have been something's gone wrong. Like I had a, I had a 3D Hobby Shop 51-inch slick that twice slammed into the ground nose first, took off, was doing nothing. Literally, the best takeoff you could pull. I was trying to impress the old guys, the committee members, just with doing nothing crazy. And I did this beautiful takeoff and the thing just nosed down. I had another plane that sort of just went off. People people say, oh, my plane went off the air. It was radio interference. But uh-huh. maybe it's not radio interference. Maybe it's the, the, the receiver system not coping with the servo load and just shutting things down. If you don't have a power box or any other kind of system to regulate that, quite possibly. Normally okay. they do return after, you know, depending on what, I'm not going to get into brands, brands here, but some radios or some receiver brands do take longer to restart than others. And if you're unfortunate enough to have that situation close enough to the ground or with one of those brands that does take longer for the receiver to basically link up and get going again, then yeah, the results can be disastrous. Yeah. Now, there's lots of different solutions in the power box range. Let's aim for, like in our discussion, let's keep in mind, say, the average 100cc kind of plane, maybe, because there's, you know, what what are the differences between the products in the range, though? You can start off with the receiver. Basically, there are two types of power boxes at the moment, the first of which is the traditional style of power boxes, which I don't want to say they're older because they are still also new versions, but it's the older style. And that's using receivers where if you have an eight channel receiver that has eight outputs for eight servos, and that plugs into the power box with one channel, one lead per channel. And then you've got the newer style power boxes, which is in fairness, the way things are going, where you can use SBUS or bus system receivers where all that information for all 16, 18, 26 channels of the radio are being sent by a single wire, in which case you only need to connect one wire between the receiver and the power box. So those are the two kinds of of power boxes that there are available. So that's kind of already halving uh, which ones you can choose from, depending on which receivers you have or which receivers you want to use. Normally, I'd always recommend if you have to buy receivers, go for the bus style receivers. 
Now, you don't need a big bus style receiver to get all the channels on your radio. That's something that a lot of people don't quite get yet. An eight channel physical receiver needs eight channels to power eight channels. A three channel bus receiver, even though it only has three physical channels on it, the bus channel actually has all 16, 18 or 26 channels of your receive or your radio on it. So you can get the really cheap three channel full range receivers and they will channel channel all those channels to the power box and you save a load of money compared to if you went for the other system where you need an eight channel receiver, which is normally a lot more expensive. You can also then add in two of these bus receivers, which adds in a bit more security, basically meaning that if one receiver doesn't have a good signal, it can swap to the other one. And normally it's still cheaper to buy two of those simple bus receivers than it is one big traditional style receiver. That's the, well, with the, the 200 cc's that I've got, both got power boxes in them and I, I use Spectrum Radio gear. I just have for years and I just keep on using it because I just got it. And I've got four satellite receivers just connected directly into into the uh, into the power box. It's just nice and easy setup. I don't have a big, big Spectrum receiver. I just use the satellites, which, as you said, are exactly. cost effective. And, and basically, I've got four, I've got four of them in, in the plane and uh, lots of redundancy right there. Uh, okay, so for a hundred cc, what what are you using, say, in your your um, models as an example, just to give people some sort of reference? I've actually used basically the whole array of power boxes, basically both to try them, test them, make videos about them. But I would say if you're going to go with that recommendation of using a bus style receiver, then you have a couple of options at the moment, depending on what you want to do with it. You can either go for something like the competition, which is quite a simple power box in the sense that it has four channels which can be used doubly. So basically two servos coming out of a single channel and you can program each of those individually. So you can change the reverse, endpoint, subtrain, etc. on those. And then the rest of the channels are normal standard channels, but it has the benefits of double battery, double receiver, uh, double redundancy, 100% safety and security, etc. You can then go to something like the Mercury, which is similar. However, you can match as many channels as you want with as many channels as you want. But it also has a gyro inside. So that one now has an iGyro inside, which is a three axis gyro, which can help keep the stability of the model in windy days. Or, okay, it's not an aerobatic model, but if it's in a vector jet, it can help out with the vector thrust on the turbine. Uh, and then you can go to the absolutely latest power box that's come out, which is the Pioneer, which is a much smaller power box. And it's the first unit produced by Powerbox, which doesn't offer a battery regulator inside. So basically that one can now allow you to gain the whole power from your batteries going straight to the receiver. So where previously all Powerboxes, you could choose between 5.9 volts or 7.4 volts for your servos. This one now gives 
the whole 8.4 volts directly to the servos. So all those that have been complaining that my servos can hold up to 8.4 volts. Powerbox can only give it 7.4. Okay, there's a reason behind that and there's an argument behind that. And it's the fact that an 8.4 volt battery isn't 8.4 volts for long. It then isn't 8.3 or 8.2 volts for very long either. And it soon comes down to kind of that voltage and it just provided a stability throughout. But people wanted an unregulated system. So there you go, Powerbox Pioneer, 8.4 volts, no regulation. Every single drop of power that goes in goes straight to the servo as well. So the, those are those are kind of the three the three main choices for a standard basic aromatic model at the moment. Yeah. Now, when it comes to deciding whether to use a power box or not in your model, whether it be aerobatics or scale, what's your criteria as to when you get into to a power box solution? Normally, I would start as on 50cc. I actually destroyed uh, an Extreme Flight 88 inch extra many years ago due to not having a power box. It had a standard receiver servos that were a lot less powerful than the ones we have today and a single lipo battery and i had a burnout where the receiver just couldn't handle it at the bottom part of a rolling loop and that made a mess so i've had a couple of 50 cc since and i've always installed a power box in them since and i do recommend anyone to do the same it just adds that power to the servos and that safety. I mean, a 50cc plane, okay, it isn't as expensive as a 100cc plane, but it's still a lot of money. And to have something like that literally fall out the sky and have no control over that, just watching it, I mean, it's heartbreaking and it's just pointless. For the sake of a couple of hundred euros that you can get something as simple as an Evolution, which is 199 euros, you can then power everything with two batteries. You've got all your main servos are all controlled and secured by the power box. And you can just go absolutely nuts and you're not going to have any kind of problem. I think it's worth that little extra investment. And what about if you're a scale guy or a turbine guy? Same same situation, really? I was saying scale is maybe not as strictly necessary because you're not using normally as big of a servo and even if you are, you're not using the big, massive surfaces and deflections that you do in aerobatic models. However, scale models do tend to have more servos as well. So at the end of the day, you know, it's horses for courses, but if you're using less power out of the servos you have, but you're running a few more servos, the sum of all that power equates to kind of the same kind of thing. So I'd probably say, yeah, if, especially if it's something that you've dedicated a bit of time into, just get an evolution. It can control six different channels. You've got double battery, and uh, it's just going to give you that added security for, for under 200 euros, which at the end of the day, in, the, in our expensive hobby, it isn't a massive amount. No, I've actually got an evolution running in a, in a 30cc, which... Oh. I put it in almost by chance, I must say, because I picked it up at a really good price, and I and I, I needed to put something in the plane. I went, well, I got this on the shelf. I'll just put that in, and uh, yeah, have it, 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 a little bit of an overkill, but it's not. It's actually it's not heavy. Well, especially in your case with Spectrum, where if you only needed the the satellites and you didn't have a receiver, it yeah. acts as a receiver as well. So 
Go for it. Yep, that's right. That's right. It was a nice, easy setup. Uh, a question came to mind. I'm going to ask it before I forget about it, and that is we we know that these uh, power boxes are regulating power, right? Yeah. So if you're putting 8.4 volts you know, through the system, it's going to soak it up and produce 7.4 and continually produce 7.4. Uh, what happens if you start getting really low, like under 7.4? You're going to have problems? Problems you're going to have because you're running out of battery. But yeah. as far as the power box is concerned, no, the power box will continue feeding power through until both, basically both batteries are completely drained. So once you get below 7.4, it's not a case that the regulator stops working or that, that battery gets cut off. It's just not needing to regulate. So it, instead of taking something off the top of that battery, it's just letting it through as if it was unregulated. 7.3, 7 7.2, 7 6, 4, 0, fresh. Crash. <laughs> Charge your batteries. <laughs> Back on the ground in five minutes. Exactly. Uh, and of course, I've got to mention that you can regulate to 6 volt as well with a lot of the power boxes as well if you're using 6 volt servos. Yeah, 5.9. Five five point, why 5.9 and not 6? <laughs> yeah, classic, classic. Going back years, that's what everyone always used to use. So yeah, they're stuck with stuck it. With it. Yeah, well, sometimes you got to, you know, a lot of people reuse servos and stuff like that, and you've got to cater for them as well. And of course, you know, you're into jets as well. And I think, you know, we know how much we spend on our turbine jets. It makes a lot of sense to have a, a foolproof system, really, in our in our jets as well. So, you know, we talk a lot about aerobatics, but you know, you know what? One thing, do do share this sentiment? I, I think that when it comes to proving technology. Nothing beats a freestyle 3D aerobatic guy testing it because they are pushing <laughs> everything to the limits. And I, I've often said to people, if you want to know what works, go and have a look at what the freestyle aerobatics guys are using because they're picking the gear that they know is going to be reliable enough to the task. Do you think you think that's correct or am I just making things up? Yeah, no, totally. Uh, there's not much that pushes equipment further than a shaky, large surface fast flying, fast stopping 3D aircraft. I mean, you have the, the most obvious test is with servos. In aerobatic models, I've been fortunate, I've been flying with MKS servos now for five, six years, possibly a little bit more actually, time flies. But mm. uh, the prior to that, I had tried basically every brand of servo out there. And barring the Futabas, the really expensive top-of-the-line Futabas, every single one of them failed me. I used to be a huge fan of JR servos, the 8911s. Yeah. And while in a jet, I've never had a single one of them fail, jitter, or even generate any kind of slot. In an aerobatic model, in a three-meter model, I was finding that after 15 flights, I was changing gears, cases, the lot. So it goes to show that the same server that will work perfectly well in a jet, no matter how quick it is, in a 3D model is really suffering. And uh, I think the same applies to pretty much all the equipment in the model, albeit exaggerated even more with servos. Yeah, it, look, it, it's crazy to see how far things have come with servo technology. And and our friend Ido Segev did did work with JR, and he had the same experience oh. with with some of the JR servos. And he actually went back to them and said, "This is what you need to do to the servo." 
and mm. they created another model, and I can't remember whether it was the eighty nine oh one or something, but we called it the Edo Edo Servo, <laughs> and because Edo would send, he'd test the servos, and then he'd send back the servo with the complete linkage and everything back yeah. to JR to check it, and they finally. You know, he said, go and do this. Change the shaft needs to be thicker and blah, 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 and whatever. And they did it, and it, it, it you know, produced a more reliable server. But fast yeah. forward now to what we're seeing today is that, you know, brands like MKS and uh, even some of the newer high techs and things like that, everybody is now has sort of learnt. And it's amazing how we can we can benefit nowadays from, from just time and, and investment in R&D. The thing yeah. is getting more and more reliable, really, when you think about it. But in saying that, though, like things can still go wrong. And one of the things I think with the power box is this concept of redundancy. Now, tell me a bit about the redundancy that uh, the power box solution offers. Now, we know twin batteries, but what about in the circuitry? Is there anything in the circuitry that that is is redundant that protects us? Yeah, everything, everything. If you take a power box and take it out of the case, which isn't recommended as it will void your warranty. Mm -hmm. But uh, if you take it out of the case, you'll actually see that the left half of the power box mirrors the right half of the power box. And there's a reason for that. There's actually two power boxes in that unit, two completely independent, redundant power boxes that have the same source input, so the receiver, and the same source output to the servos. But everything else is duplicated. So you can have one of those power boxes literally fail and you're not really going to know because the the other power box that's inside the box is just going to say, oh, it's on me now. I'm on it. Yeah. Look, it's funny. I've, I've met people and, and really nice. There's one guy that comes to mind, a lovely bloke and can't meet anybody nicer. But he had this theory that what he would do is he would put for redundancy, he'd have two receivers, one for the left-hand side of the plane and one for the right-hand side of the plane. Now, I used, yeah, I used to say to him, if you lose one side of your plane, I reckon you're not going to be landing with half of your plane working kind of thing. And it's like, just put a power box in it. If you really want to have a redundant system, and he was mainly a scale flyer and he had some really nice scale planes, like, just go and put a power box in it because it's it's got everything yeah, that you need. Yeah, so, totally. I mean, that is... Very old school. That is how it was done before Powerbox came around. Yeah. Guys were struggling to have enough channels and enough power for the servos, and they were installing two receivers into a large model. And in some cases, they were able to bring it down with one aileron and one elevator. Other times, they weren't. But it seems in with all the technology we have now, a little bit unnecessary, <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. That's right. Well, you've talked a bit about the different range and sort of deciding, you know, how to decide which one is suited to what sort of kind of um, application. Let's just talk a bit about the setup process now because, and primarily what I'm talking about here is the servo matching. Now, I don't want you, you've got some great videos. Uh, What's a YouTube channel called? Picking, Pickering RC? Uh, I actually have two now. I think we talked about this last time I yes. was on. I was setting up a second one, and I've now kind of finally separated them fully and properly. If you search for Martin Pickering, that's my YouTube channel that I've always had, and that's all my English videos. And I've now set up the other separate channel for the same videos that I'm now producing twice, because uh, I'm doing the same video again, 
in Spanish. That one's Pickering RC, which matches my uh, shop here in Spain. Yeah, I'll tell you what, that is just... Uh... Talk about uh, insane. The word you're looking for is insane. (laughs) It's true. It's because I've produced videos before and and that kind of stuff. I just know how much work is involved. And now to do it in two languages is just doubling. That's just absolutely crazy. But but do you know what? It's it's one of those things that nobody else is doing this. And as I said, like if you want to know how to set up a a, a, a power box solution, just jump onto Martin Pickering on YouTube. And you'll see the best tutorials that are so easy to understand. Just Thank jump you. online and uh, subscribe. Don't forget to subscribe. Like and subscribe yeah. and hit that bell, Martin. Exactly. The Martin Pickering uh, YouTube. I'm giving you the plug here. You don't have to give one yourself. It's because awesome. you know what? Yeah, no, they're, they're, they're genuinely very, very good. You know, I'm not being paid. This is not a, by the way, this is not a paid promotion for Powerbox. When there's no money exchanging. I just, wanted to speak about power boxes and I knew Martin's the man to talk about it. So uh, I'm glad he could be here. So the setup process and primarily that high level, give us that high level overview of setting up the, the servo syncing. Cause I think that that's a really popular thing for people to do. And I'm talking about when you've got multiple servo servos on the same surface and how do you get those servos to work in sync? Just give us that, that high level understanding of what needs to happen. Yeah, if we look at pretty much all power boxes now, they all have, barring the smallest one that we mentioned earlier, the Evolution, and separating the latest Pioneer, which does work in a slightly different way now. All the other power boxes, the servo matching works in the same way, where you can have multiple servos connected to a same channel. So in simple terms, using a Y lead inside the power box, basically. So you've got two servos off one channel. However, a Y lead normally, both servos run exactly the same. Whereas when you're using the servo matching, you can change the center and the endpoints of one, both, or as many servos as you want, making sure that they match. So the process basically is, or the way I do it, I'm sure there's other people that may prefer slightly different ways, but I tend to set the first of the two servos in the radio. So, okay, you try and get it mechanically accurate. So uh, just the length of the push rod so that you don't need any sub trim and set the endpoints also mechanically as accurately as you can so that you've got the radio pretty much set to max out the servo. If you're not maxing out the servo, you're not using all the power that the servo has available to it, uh, which is a little bit pointless. So always max out the radio first and then use the shortest arm that you can to get full travel, full throw deflection. That is using all the power from the servo. And then moving on to the second servo, and the same for the third or fourth, however many you have on that same wing elevator or whatever, then you're going to want to match that second servo to run exactly the same as the first one. So via the power box, you can set up the center of that second servo, so with the servo actually disconnected from the wing, with all the push rod in place, but just without one of the two screws holding the ball links in, using the power box, adjust that servo so that you can actually slot that screw through the ball link and into the uh, arm or servo arm uh, easily. That means it's not forcing. And then do the same again for full travel at both directions. Once you've done all three of those points, 
and you've been able to get that screw in easily in all three points, well, that's because all the geometry is correct and the servo isn't suffering at any one of those three points. And basically, if you've got the three points right, all the points in between, because it's linear, will also be correct as well. Yeah, okay. So that's the important thing. If you, you match the centers and you match the ends and everything in between should be uh, should be fine. There, there's some people that say that... Um, and that's exactly how I set up my my hundred cc is exactly that that method now, but there are some people who say that you should have them slightly off. Is that true? Is there any benefit in having them slightly off as far as I don't know keeping some pressure on something? I don't know. I've heard people talk about yeah. it in the past. The reason for that is that they want to eliminate slop. So basically, the if they have some poor link ball links or the geometry on the servo isn't quite right. Or maybe it's just a little bit of a servo that's had too many flights on it and it's got a little bit of play in it. If it was just a single servo running that surface, that surface could potentially have a little bit of play in it. The idea of using the second servo to slightly force that slot into one direction, so basically pushing it against the other servo in such a way that it avoids that little bit of slop. It sounds good on paper, and I think knowingly, willingly, or unwillingly, we've probably all done it at some point in the past, even by accident. But if you need to actually force the servos to make them keep center, the problem isn't with your servo matching. The problem's with the ball links, the arms, or the servos. So probably look into those things first and then use that possibly as a, as a last option once you've gone through everything else. Normally it can just, just be one of the ball links that for some reason the ball is a little bit loose inside the coupling and it just has that, that half a nothing of, of play in it. But of course, because we're running such large surfaces on airplanes now with such large servo arms, the tiniest bit of slop will generate a quarter inch of play on the surface. Yeah. Okay. That's a that's a really really good explanation there right there. So another question for you: we we see a lot of servo matching happening on ailerons. Uh, what about flaps that are running? You know, if you've got two flaps, just single servo on each, are you just setting that up in the radio, or are you doing them through the power box? Yeah, providing I have a radio that has enough free channels on it and a power box which has enough free outputs on it, I'll be using the radio to do that. Simply because it is easy. I find it it's easier just to, whilst you're looking at the model, look at it, check it, say, okay, down a bit, down a bit, down a bit, go. And then if uh, after flying, you want a little bit more flap, or a little bit less flap, well, it's easy to check that everything's working in the same direction. We said earlier that if you match the center of the end point, it's linear and all the rest will match. That is accurate 98% of the time. There are, however, minor variations if the servo starts from a slightly offset position or one push rod's maybe a little bit longer than the other or the servo is a little bit further forward or further back than the, than the other one as well. So in the case of two servos working on the same surface, because that tiny amount of slot that we mentioned a moment ago is always there. No matter how hard you try, there's always some tiny degree of slop. 
that's going to offset basically any kind of difference between the two servos anyway. In the case of flat, because you're using normally huge deflections up to sort of 80, 90 degrees almost in some turbines, if you want to find a middle point in there, it normally is easier to actually double check that they are actually identical. And in that case, personally, I tend to use the radio. But if we are short on channels, you can also do exactly the same thing through the power box. A lot of people that may have never experienced working with a power box distribution board, how are they actually programmed? What is the interface that, that you can use? This is actually changing, I would say at the moment. For years, the power box comes with an on-off switch, which is formed of three buttons. One that you hold down permanently, basically to be able to do to turn the model on or off. And then the other two buttons equate one per battery. So you hold one down and then tap both buttons to turn each of the two batteries on. And the same for turning it off. As that's three buttons, you can also use that to serve a menu. So that one button is basically an enter button and the other two are an up and down button. So you can do everything that you need from those three buttons through the screen on the power box to enter the menus, change values, change features, including the servo matching and everything else. Newer power boxes, such as the Pioneer, they're now being able to be controlled actually from the radio if using a power box core transmitter or a jetty transmitter, or if you're using something like Futaba, then you can set it up via the Bluecom or USB interface. So from your phone or from your computer. Yeah, have you ever? I've I've actually got the Powerbox Bluetooth app, and I bought the little cable and all that kind of stuff, but I've never never used it. Have you ever played around with it? Oh yeah, I mean I use it a lot. Uh, first of all, you can use it to update your power boxes. So that normally there's nothing that actually needs an update, but if you're going to plug it in and connect it, well, you might as well have the latest update. You never quite know what you're going to find in there. But depending on what unit you're using, you may actually need to use it to gain access to some features, or it may just be another way of doing the same thing as you can with the buttons. If you have a look at, say, that uh, last video of the uh, iGyro 3 Extra, in that one, the iGyro 3 Extra, you can now set up basically everything directly on the unit itself using the button that's on it and the radio. However, the previous version, the three extra, the blue one, if you wanted to set the gyro inside the plane in a different orientation to what it came set to as standard, you had to use the blue cup. Really easy, just connect it and say, which way are you pointing? That way, job done. But you needed the blue cup for that. In the same way as all the fine tuning details of both the 3E before and the three extra now, Things like the airspeed factor or these, uh, all the stick controls as to how quickly the gyro responds and uh, whether it bounces, over bounces or not, things like that. They're still set up via the uh, phone simply because the iGyro 3 Extra 3 doesn't have a screen and there's no other way to really set all these tiny, tiny little features of which it has quite a few. Okay, most of the time they're not particularly necessary unless you want to get 110% out of the gyro. But it just adds on 
extra features that you don't always have access to from the uh, standard interface. Yeah, because some of the some of the screens aren't very big on on the power boxes. I've got mine are not latest generation units, but one of them has a, a small screen on it, which is you know was fine for setting up the servo matching. But then I've I've got an, an older one that actually has a separate screen that shows all sorts of different data. You can mount it in your plane, and it will show you your yeah. batteries and all that kind of stuff, and uh, as well. And that came with actually a handheld programmer you plug uh, it in yeah, the uh, side and up and down and uh, the royal or the champion yeah oh, yeah it, it, i told you it's, it's not a new device it's pretty old actually it's in one of my planes now i thought today and it was still not one issue at all um uh, you know so uh, the, you mentioned gyros and it's it's, a, it's another thing that's sort of come into the hobby and we're seeing especially a lot of turbine flyers putting gyros in their planes you know, yeah. what is Powerbox currently offering and, and, and you know, how do they integrate into, into the whole system? Uh, Powerbox actually has quite a few different gyro systems available at the moment, depending on what unit you're running, even what radio you're, you're running. Uh, starting with the simplest, smallest version, you could say that uh, the Powerbox iGyro SAT, which unfortunately only works with Powerbox receivers, that's a three gyro axis. It's uh, about the size of a coin and it just plugs into a Powerbox receiver and it automatically converts that receiver into a receiver with gyro inside, basically. Uh, so instead of buying a receiver that's got a gyro, you just plug it into any Powerbox receiver and uh, hey presto, it works. Admittedly, that one is a little bit limited because at the moment, it's only available for Powerbox radios. You then have the uh, iGyro 1E and the 3E, which is now the 3 Extra. And those are the ones that I always normally recommend to people when they say, what's a gyro? I kind of want one, I want to have a play around with it. I want to have a test, see how it works. Those are the ones to go for. The 1E is a single axis gyro, or the really fun one is now the 3 Extra. That one is fun because it's just so easy to set up. It's uh, three axis again, but you can set it up in literally two minutes, especially if you watch that video, and uh, then just go out, fly. You have the gain, so how much gyro on a slider, and just crank that up in flight, and you'll instantly see the difference. I mean, it really does make a difference. I always say to someone, just take it, put it in a foamy, and just go flying with it for a day. You'll see how much of a difference it makes. And it's just so quick because you just turn up the slider and you'll see suddenly the plane, the foamy, which foamies are normally never precise, suddenly starts flying nice and smooth. You're still flying the airplane. I always say this, a gyro isn't an autopilot. It just makes the plane fly a little bit straighter and a little bit smoother. But it really does make a difference in that. And once you play with that, then you can see how it works and say, okay, yeah, well, I'm not going to put it into an F3A model because they're already super precise and it's not going to make much of a difference. Not to mention, of course, you're not allowed to for competition. But I have this other plane that, uh, you know, it, the wing's always wobbling or, or the rudder sort of tail fishes 
or it just kind of gets buffeted about by the wind because it's a little bit on the light side. Well, you know that you can just put that in, plug it in between the receivers and the server the, and the servos, and you're golden. Turn up the uh, gain, and you'll see the difference again instantly. And it just makes planes fly that much nicer. And then, of course, we have the uh, iGyro SRS, which is basically the same as the previous uh, 3E and 3 Extra, but it works for S Plus receivers. And then the one that probably most people are now using and are aware of is things like Mercury or the Royale, which have all that, all that gyro technology already integrated into the power box itself. I would say that's why the Mercury has become the best selling power box, at least in my experience, because it offers all of that same functionality that all the other power boxes do, while also offering that three axis gyro inside to really help stabilize that model and make it look that little bit smoother. And for the price of uh, just under 400 euros, you know, you're looking at a gyro that's normally two to 300 euros and a power box that's normally two, sorry, two to 400 euros. When you've got everything in one box for under 400, it's a winner. Yeah, that's true. I really think that gyros make a lot of sense for scale guys, flying warbirds that might look great but might have some funny characteristics, turbine flies that want a bit of peace of mind, especially if they're flying in wind and, and things like that. We I rarely see people in the aerobatics realm putting gyros in their planes. Question just on, on gyros. Um does it dull down the inputs? You know, one of the things I've found, you know, and it's not comparing apples with apples here, but the uh, the old Spectrum AS3X system, you go and buy their uh, foamies and stuff like that, and I've been publicly saying that I don't think they're great, that they dull down the whole experience. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I've got I've got this glider that I did a review on, and, and, you know, to get it to go down, you literally push the elevator stick forward and you hold <laughs> it, and you have to just keep okay. on holding it to override the gyro kind of thing. What is that experience like with the Powerbox Gyro? Well, I'll start off with saying that I, to some degree, disagree with uh, <laughs> that last statement. I think the uh, AS3X system that comes pre-installed in most Horizon Hobby uh, foam planes now, I actually think it's really good in the sense that it makes planes that normally wouldn't fly particularly well suddenly become flyable and fun. Now, there is a downside to that, and that is that they've had to increase the gyro gain to such a high value to gain that fun experience that there are certain situations where the the gyro works against you. One of those is the example that you've just given. And the other example, which is really obvious and really easy to test out, is if you try and do, say, a really quick eight-point roll or any kind of quick stop in the roll axis, the planes will normally always kind of bounce back a bit. So so not only do they stop, but they bounce back in the opposite direction. Now, if you do an eight-point or a 16-point roll and do it that with quick aileron rotation, the plane just does this whole weird jiggly dance. (laughs) But that is what's making the plane fly nicely when the design itself in that size and that size to weight normally shouldn't fly as well as it does. 
In some degree, you can have the same with any gyro, including the Powerbox Systems versions. If you increase the gain to such a point where the plane flies so smoothly and so precisely that it doesn't really want to deviate from its own trajectory, well, yes, it will fly great, but it's not going to fly great doing any kind of maneuver. But in most cases, you're using a lot less gyro gain than that. I mean, the, the side models that we're normally installing these gyros in are obviously a lot larger than the AS3X models. And the uh, AS3X models have that, that problem that they're small and they're not heavy, but compared to the, the, the surface area that they have, proportionally they are. So they need that high gain to, to see that improvement. Whereas in larger models, you don't need that much of an improvement because normally a larger model proportionally is a lot lighter and therefore is already flying really well. All we're trying to do is improve it that little bit extra, that little bit more. So because we're only improving it that little bit more, we're only needing a little bit extra help from the gyro. So you're actually using relatively small gyro gains, which don't actually affect most of the flying anymore. It's just helping you out basically when you're not touching the sticks almost to keep the plane waggle free. Yeah, that's a good explanation. What a testament to that is that, you know, I've got this E-Flight Night Radian and, and I was able to hand it over to a bunch of kids to fly it. It was that easy. Personally, yeah, the gain is really, really high. I've actually got the app to try to dull everything down but the gain was that high that i felt like i wasn't flying the glider and it's a glider <laughs> and this thing is but i gave it to my son and he landed the plane he had never landed a plane in his life and it was just a beautiful thing you know you throw a bit of rudder in and don't yeah. have to compensate for the elevator the thing's flying itself around the turn almost uh but yeah for me some of them i've just found actually i must say there's i had this um again i got another product for review it was like a UMX Timber. It's this tiny little like stole kind of plane. Yeah. It's unflyable without the gyro on. I've got it on a there switch and I turn it off and it's like, nah, I need that gyro. It's literally too small well, a plane. Exactly. That's it. Without the gyro, it just flies completely differently. And the gyro just helps it and it makes it, it really does make it a fun plane to fly. Scale that up to larger models and the you're not starting with such a difficult model to start with. So you're not needing much to improve it. And that's why the gyro really helps without it being a detriment in the rest of the maneuvers as it is in those smaller models. What planes are you running gyros in? Normally I run gyros in all of my jets and I've also included them in a couple of my foamies just for fun, basically. Uh, the video I said was going out at the uh, edge has a gyro in it, but that's also from the video and it's just been left in there. And then of course the uh, 3D fun jet, which for the the vectoring especially, it needs the gyro installed in it as well. Yeah, now with, with jets that are running um, vectoring, do you run two gyros or just one gyro? One for the vectoring? No, one for the you, can, you, can, you can use just one because the uh, both the, well, basically all the gyros from Powerbox have two outputs per axis. 
So you can use one output for the elevator and one output for the vector elevator. Ah, oh, okay. Yeah, because I was talking to a guy the other day and he said he had two gyros and he's thrust vectoring calf Mephisto. By the way, it was the first time I ever saw a thrust vectoring jet, uh, thrust vectoring jet fly and it was just a totally different experience. It was amazing to see this thing, the, the way the flat spins it could do. It was yeah. Just, oh. Have you still oh, got your... Um, it's very different. Have you still got your Saab, uh, what is it? What's the model, the little one? Yeah, we've got the SAB Lizard. I've uh, just yeah. installed a new tank in it, so we've got a little bit more fuel in it now, which I'm looking forward to testing out once we can finally go outside and fly again. And, uh, of course, we've got the, J, the J10 with the uh, vector thrust in that as well, which is a whole different style of 3D flying, but uh, it's also a lot of fun. That one's a lot more, a lot slower, sort of hangy, old school 3D almost uh, hanging around style, whereas the SAB jet is, I think it's really fun because it's a, a size model that people can actually afford to buy and afford to run. And also it's about the only 3D jet that I know that can 3D and actually fly fast. I mean, most calf models, I mean, I know that my J10 model, I think the Mephisto might do as well. There's actually a line in the instruction book that says, do not fly quickly. In a jet, <laughs> which I think is always quite fun. Yeah, I've read that in in like uh, Viper jets and things like that. That they'll put a limit, uh, you know, of, you know, don't don't fly it too fast. You know, I've got a Viper jet, but I, I look, you know, with me and turbines, it's not about necessarily all out speed for me. I'm not a speed demon kind of thing. But uh, that J10 is that is that the Pilot RC kit? No, I actually have the calf model one because I've had it now for quite a few years. At the uh, Pilot RC one does look very nice. I've got a couple of friends that uh, have just been building it. So I'm looking forward to hopefully getting some stick time on it. May need to uh, swap one for the other. Yeah, yeah. Go and have a chat with Tony. See, if, Tell him you're shooting yeah, videos I'll, or something. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm holding out for the SC one. I think that's uh, that's, that's going to be an absolutely epic one. That uh, I mean, the guys at Elster have done a brilliant job designing it. Of course, they're the guys that designed the original J10. And uh, the FC1 is their evolution. Uh, and it's uh, coming out with Pilot RC really soon. I know they've tested it already one or two versions. They've made some final tweaks to it. And it's not quite there yet. But that's because they're German. They want it to be absolutely oh, perfect. Oh, it has to be perfect. <laughs> so, uh, so I'm really looking forward to that one. That's, that's going to be a fun one because it's, uh, it's kind of a mix between an F5 and an F16. So, uh, I mean, I'm a big fan of the F5s. So I think that's going to be a really fun model to fly. It's, it's got a normal wing configuration as opposed to a Delta like the J10 does. So uh, it should, well, it knife edges really well as well as all the other classic style aerobatics and then turn on thrust, uh, the, the vector thrust and uh, go nuts. So yeah, that one's going to be, uh, that's definitely on my wish list. Well, you know, I, I, I can see you and I can see how excited you look at uh, when you're talking about <laughs> it. So it's it, it obviously going to be pretty good. Uh, just on the turbine scene in Spain where, where you currently live, what's it like? Is it a growing thing? Because here in Australia, it's, it's like turbines have exploded. Yeah, we, we had that a couple of years ago, actually, where turbines went from being something that were a rarity at clubs to almost being a rarity not to find one at a club. 
The, uh, the scene, however, seems to be split in two. There's those who want a jet and do uh, finally pick one up and have a load of fun with it, and it's their pride and joy. And then there's the uh, the other half, where they uh, there's this sort of ongoing competition between them all to have the biggest, most expensive, largest turbine, largest wingspan, heaviest. I need two guys to help me out of the car with it, kind of thing, which uh, is also really fun to see and uh, and take part in. And I'll say I'm quite lucky that at my club there's a couple of uh, people who are kind of in in that in the latter of those two. And uh, I get to, to uh, maiden test fly, trim out, and uh, have some fun with all the big toys. So long may it last. Yeah, I tell you what, you're in a really good position. You know what? Okay, you're in a great position. You've got sponsors. You 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 may get to fly a lot of different planes, but there's been a lot of hard work that's gone in along the way to get that opportunity. Oh, yeah. So you know, people think that it's just great. You know, it's all you know. It's just on that new experience having sponsors. You know, there's I've met a lot of young guys that just think they they just are striving to have a sponsor and they think that things are just going to be so good if I don't have to pay for products. <laughs> Is yeah. it really like that or not? Once, you know, What's the reality of the situation? No, I'd actually say it's almost the opposite. I mean, it's brilliant to have sponsors and I'll openly admit that I couldn't do even half of what I do if it wasn't for all of the great companies that back me. However... Back in the day, without sponsors, you could go out, buy the plane. Okay, sure, you might have to suffer and uh, wait a little bit longer whilst you save up for it. But you've bought it, and you can now just go out to the flying field and enjoy it. As opposed to, you've got to do articles, videos, uh, photos, Facebook, all the social medias, trying to show your appreciation to this company. So... It, both sides have their benefits. Is it nice to have sponsors? Definitely. I think at the moment, though, in a lot of cases, people want to have sponsor because they want to be able to say they have a sponsor almost more than the need or the actual will for the sponsor itself. It's kind of that just, it, it, bigs, it bigs you up a little bit saying, I've got a sponsor now. There's a, there's a lot of work goes goes behind it. And Think about, is the work that you're going to have to put in to keep the sponsor? Because getting a sponsor is relatively easy. Keeping the sponsor is a difficult part. Is the work that you have to put in to keep that sponsor worth what you're getting out of it? And in a lot of cases, it, it possibly isn't. Yeah, I think when I look at the whole flying scene across the world and I look at you know sponsored pilots, there's two that come to mind that I think do provide a lot of value back to their sponsor. You're one of them. I'm not just saying that because you're on the podcast, but you you can you can see it. Um, you know, I'm a marketing guy. I run a marketing agency, and I'm I work with different brands, and they might have like ambassador programs, and they they tell yeah. me about their ambassadors, and I go and have a look at what kind of marketing content they're producing to to support the brand, and it's rubbish. It's all just oh look here <laughs> I am. And there's a photo with the product and they think that that's giving value back to the brand. And that's nothing because yeah, no. anybody can take a photo and put a hashtag. It's, it's, you're one of them. And, and the other one is Jace Ducia, who does a lot of testing with Extreme Flight and, and his father is involved as well. 
Yeah. And, you know, they go to an event, you see them at an event, and the family's videoing it because another thing on YouTube, and they're mm. putting in a lot of time and support, and they're, they're working very much in partnership with Extreme Flight. Now, when it comes to you, you know, okay, you're not on the competition scene, events haven't been on the radar because of COVID for a while, but you are out there providing a marketing solution, which is what they want. And I think the way that you go about it in that, you know, doing the tutorials as an example, if a company had to pay for those videos, they would pay. Like if I had to go and charge someone, I'm going to talk in Australian dollars here, so, you know, add a fair bit on for, for, for euros, <laughs> that I would go and charge them maybe two $3,000 to produce that video. That's what, say, the going rate is for me to go and do a video like that. They go and give you a model that costs them a thousand bucks to make. Well, guess what? You're better off not saying no and just charging the three thousand dollars to the video. We know that the hobby know. industry. We know that the hobby industry doesn't work that way. You know, I had a magazine, and I'd get free product given to me to review, and I didn't sit there and think, "Oh, this is wonderful," because the amount of money I was pumping into the magazine, I could have gone and bought this model and still had leftover money. And yeah. then now that they gave me something, I owed them something. I owed them a review. I owed them a photograph. I owed them a video. Uh, exactly. And when and okay, if they gave me a product that was rubbish, I would never review it. I wouldn't publish a bad review because why do you want to read a magazine that says this product was no good, this product was no good? Like, yeah. It, it just, it's it's same with doing a video. I'm not going to waste my time doing a video to tell someone this is no good. Uh, and so what? And people don't realize this and say in the publishing game, if we get a model that is no good. We go back to the manufacturer and say, this is no good. Can you fix it and then send it back to me? And then I'll review it then. Now, yeah. I had a model given to me and we had a problem in, in, the, in the build. Like the instruction manual was no good. Um, there was something like, there was, uh, they had flaps on each wing and the whole servo setup on each wing was different. Why wouldn't you have them exactly the same? <laughs> it's just a mirror image. They were totally different. And then, then you couldn't get the throws properly and all the linkages were different and everything. And so I sent an email to the manufacturer and said, well, what are you doing? They came back <laughs> and said, look, I, I had the prototype. They gave me a prototype model kind of thing uh -huh. to, to play around with. And that was going to be sorted in the thing. But they're the kind of things that we you have to do because like you said earlier, you're working in partnership with them. And um, as I said, I think the majority of people that are sponsored really struggle with that concept. And it's not just about, you know, going out and competing and winning for the brand because that comes and goes like that. Exactly. I've always said a lot of a lot of the best ambassadors for brands and sponsored pilots don't even fly. Just go on YouTube and there's a couple of big YouTube channels out there who produce really great content and they get sent a load of products to show on the channel, to review, to show how they work. And they don't necessarily even fly, but they can get the right information across to a large enough volume of people for it to be interesting for that company to actually uh, support that person. And at the end of the day, that's what it boils down to. I mean, a lot of what I'm doing now, okay, as you said, events at the moment are non-existent, so I can't do that. Actual flying at the moment, locked in, can't do that either. But if I keep uh, showing products, tutorials, videos of whatever I can, it's both good for the company because they're still getting some publicity and it's good for myself as well because it keeps me in contact with those people who are used to watching the videos. And in some degree, once we can get out and flying again, hopefully 
they kind of still remember you and say, oh, well, let's invite him to this air show or let's invite him to our country to do a few flights because you're still in recent memory. Well, Martin, normally I, I have that signature move, you know, that signature question I ask everybody to, to wrap up the, the guest interview, and that is what has been your favourite model? But I've already asked you that question, so I'm introducing a new one. What is that one model that you're looking forward to owning in the future? And it could be of any, any variety. I'm going to have to go FC1. We talked about it a little bit earlier in the video, and it is the one that I'm most excited for and have been for quite some time. Uh, I actually approached the guys at... Uh, Elster Jet a few years ago in order to get my hands on one and the fact that they've now finally started testing the, the prototypes that's being designed and built in conjunction with Pilot RC and the fact that that's now kind of going to be coming to the light I think really soon I'm really looking forward to that one it's a, I mean, it's a 3D jet with F5 style lines to it two things that i absolutely love vector jets and f5s so uh yeah that's that's my next dream jet and i can't wait to get my hands on it yeah that sounds like a winner i, I was thought you were going to say something like two channel glider that you, you know, phone or something oh, like that i'm i'm trying to pick up an elf as well they're brilliant two channel glider dlg yeah. But yeah. you don't need to do the whole spinny, spinny thing. Just, oh, just it's just—it's so easy to flick up in the air. I've had a couple in the past. Brilliant, brilliant models. Brilliant. I'll fun. tell you what—I've got a couple of DLGs, and uh, I fly this little Tomahawk Aviation slingshot, one meter wingspan kind of thing. Pretty small, and um, let's just say I'm not a ballerina. My launches look terrible. <laughs> I'm very heavy on my feet, and uh, it's not a, it's not a pretty sight, but it's a lot of fun. Actually, tomorrow, as I as I record this interview, I'm I'm actually going back. Can you believe, Martin? Today's a Saturday here in Australia. I went flying today, and I'm going flying again tomorrow. I came home and I said to my wife, "I think I'll go flying again." Talk tomorrow. about rubbing it in. Well, I'm sorry. <laughs> I was in lockdown for three months. So I couldn't do anything. No, it's our turn to. But you know <laughs> what? We um. We, uh, but I haven't been flying much, so I'm making the most. But I'm going out because I've got this F5J full carbon fiber glider that I want to go and fly. Oh, it's nice. good, good weather for it, and uh, so that's what I'm looking forward to getting out to tomorrow. I did my aerobatics today. I go and fly some gliders and uh, my EDF nice. jet. I'm going to give that a crack. So I'm actually planning. I'm actually planning to do a, a new video on an old plane that I've had for quite a while. It's been the, been in the last couple of videos, and I've had quite a lot of people asking about it. The green blaster two that's yeah, yeah. been in the back of my videos uh, for a while. I've not done a video on any kind of DLG yet, and I think that one is probably going to be interesting. I think it's a lot of people still don't really know even what a DLG is, let alone how it works and the fact that there's no motor, but you don't fly off a cliff either. You actually just lob it into the air as best as you can, which is going to be. Uh, Interesting and fun watching me hurl around. Uh, no, well, <laughs> I've again, done one. My, 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 my attempts aren't particularly good either, but uh, still good fun trying. I, I did a video. I did recently, oh, about a year ago or so now, I did a video of me and my, my discus launch glider. It was literally the first time I'd ever flinged a, a glider into the air. But the thing that blows my mind, and you can't capture this on video, no video does a DLG justice. 
the launch of a DLG and the height you can get from flinging the thing in the air is phenomenal. Yeah. And the speed in which it gets up there, it just doesn't make sense. I, I, I saw some no. videos <laughs> where you see it sort of, you get this glimpse of the glider going up. But until you actually do it in real life and you throw this thing, give it a bit of a bit of a push up, it's just for, I just don't know how the aerodynamics work so well. Even my yeah. little one meter wingspan thing, it's amazing how high I can get that thing. I know, I'm actually planning on showing a video of throwing a tennis ball in the air first as reference. That is great. And, the, and then great. launch the DLG next and say, how the heck is it possible that this tennis ball that's smaller, probably lighter, I can not throw as high as this, I think it's about 1.8 meter that lasts. Yeah. This massive wingspan glider. How is it even possible? That is true. Should be fun. That is true. Yeah, anyway. Well, I'll be I'll be watching it, of course. I am subscribed. So awesome. Um just tell us a bit about where, where do people need to subscribe? Yeah, go to YouTube, check out Martin Pickering, and uh leave us a load of likes, subscribe, and hit that bell. I always forget about the bell. There's always uh really cool content on there, uh tutorials, flying events, travel around the world as and when we can. And uh, all kinds of uh, fun vlogs and interesting tips and tricks along the way. So uh, go there and check it out. And if you want the same thing in Spanish, again, go on YouTube, Pickering RC. That's the one. And don't forget Instagram, Facebook, you're all on, on, across that as well? Yeah, just search for me uh, anywhere and I'm there basically. So Instagram, Facebook, uh, Martin Pickering or Pickering RC uh, comes up with both. And uh, anyone wants to get in touch, I've also got my website, martin-pickering.com. And uh, maybe not uh, to our English speakers, but I also have an online shop for modeling stuff, which is pickeringrc.com, based in Spain. Martin, you're a very, very busy man, and I always appreciate you spending some time with me. And, and w w weekends is probably our time that we can catch up because, you, you know, you, you've got a, a full-time job. You're a big, yeah. big corporate high flyer. And you're flying on all <laughs> well, fronts, really. Like the, yeah, something like that sounds good, Martin. Don't let the truth yeah, yeah, yeah. a good story, right? Exactly. It's all about pumping <laughs> it up. And uh, but no, you, you do do a good job. And and again, thank you for joining me on the Flat Out RC podcast. And you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna get back. You're gonna be back on. Awesome. I look forward to it. Thanks for having us back on again. And uh, always a pleasure. About to leave. Already packing. Come with me. I'm not really asking, we'll get away to a place where we don't know. Another episode of the Flat Out RC podcast done and dusted. Big thank you to Martin Pickering for joining me once again. Uh, you know, as I said, the first repeat offender here on the Flat Out RC podcast. Hope you learned a bit more about power boxes and uh, why to use them and all that kind of stuff. I know I did. Uh, I do have some in, in some of my planes, but you start questioning, do I really need these? Should I, you know, should I not? But uh, anyway, it makes a lot of sense now. So big thank you to Martin. Now, as always, if you like this episode, don't forget to subscribe. Uh, review it if you like on Apple Podcasts so you can encourage other people to uh, to come and have a, have a listen. It is a weekly podcast, so if you subscribe, every Wednesday the new episode will come out and you'll be the first ones to uh, to hear it and be notified, so that'd be great. Don't forget, whilst you're in the mood for subscribing, Flat Out RC YouTube channel, uh, Instagram, Facebook, all those kind of things, jump on board to the Flat Out RC movement. 
Big thank you to everybody for listening. There'll be plenty more coming. Stay tuned. Talk to you next week. Thanks a lot. Now looking back, eyes on the freeway, Bonnie and Clyde, a classic cliche, we're on the run, this is what we waited for.